0: Um, okay, everyone. Uh, welcome to the C- CMS Colloquium series. And uh, some of you have been here for multiple uh, events. Uh, some of you have uh, are here for the first time. Some of you are catching just the games talks. And uh, I'm uh, my my name is Philip Tan. I'm a part. I'm the executive director of the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab. And It's my pleasure to introduce to you today NYU Game Center's uh, director Frank Lance. Um, who plays Drop Seven? In, yeah, okay. You can thank him for that. <laughs> um, that uh, but uh, on his official bio, uh, he's been teaching game design uh, uh, at, at the at NYU's Interactive Telecommunications Program and also at the School of Visual Arts, the Parsons School of Design, um, and has been writing uh, on a number of publications and giving talks at, uh, at, at, at conferences like uh, the Game Developers conference uh, which uh, which are highly uh, uh, acclaimed very well rated talks uh, and uh, if you're going to GDC this year um, uh, nec- 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 next year he should definitely be one of the first few people that you're looking for uh, scheduling your your, your building a schedule around um, in 2005 he co-founded area code which is a New York-based uh, game developer uh, that uh, published drop seven uh, as um, uh, among other games and um, and that was uh, acquired by uh, Zynga uh, in, two t- in 2011. So, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it, it's a very, very long bio. Uh, so. Probably, that's probably <laughs> enough, right? I think yeah, I think, I, think, I think people generally don't want to hear me talk. So I'm just going to hand it over to Frank, and everyone give him a warm welcome. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, yeah, so this is the this is the subject of my of my talk today, and um, basically it's uh, a pretty simple and straightforward idea. Um, I'm coming to realize as I grow older that it's it's uh, really kind of the only idea I have. Really, as I there are a lot of things that I like to to talk about in games, and this one seems to uh, you know the idea of of trying to understand games as an aesthetic form is is the overarching idea that 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 joins them all together. So um, I mean, the, the basic concept is quite simple. is that games belong with the arts, right? That there is something uh, similar to but not identical to music, painting, film, literature, and, and so forth. Um, and in some ways, I think this is a, sort of an emerging consensus. I don't think that it's uh, a shocking idea. It seems to be, over time, uh, a natural idea that we are coming to, to understand and, and think of games in this way. Uh, but at the same time, I think it often leads to confusion. Uh, I think the, the the lack of awareness of, of games a, as an aesthetic form is behind a lot of the, the misunderstandings and confusion that I see. Um, so I do think it, it is helpful to, to visit this idea and kind of dig into it and try to articulate it clearly. And the question is sort of, to begin with, is why does it matter, right? Why does it matter um, whether games are one thing or another? And I believe that the, the first answer to that question is because it, it helps us in thinking about games. It helps us uh, understand what games are capable of, uh, what kinds of experiences that we can expect from them what ambitions we should have for them, what kinds of conversations to have about them and the language to use in those conversations, uh, what kind of critiques to make of them and how to teach them and and so on and so forth. Um, On the other hand, I think there's another answer to that question which is that it doesn't matter. I think you can quite honestly say it doesn't really matter with something as big and, and important as games uh, to to try to place them correctly into a, a cultural category. You don't really need to understand what games are. Uh, it's totally enough just to play them, to choose them wisely, to learn them well, to play them deeply, to play hard and fair and not hurt anyone, to win with style and lose with dignity and to wring pleasure and comfort and surprise and wisdom out of them. And you can do all of that without ever knowing what they what they are, you know, um, and uh, but but I do think that if you're if you're going to bother to think about what they are and to think about these kind of fundamental questions, which which I think are enjoyable to think about for their own sake, uh, then then you should make an effort to get it right. Uh, so that's really kind of what leads me to to ask this question and think about this. Um, one of the things you notice about placing the these four wonderful uh, uh, aesthetic works next to each other um, is that. Uh, they're all they're are four rectangles, right? And I think that's uh, kind of revealing, right? One of the one of the reasons that we um, have this emerging consensus, uh, perhaps about uh, games being an aesthetic form, uh, is because they fit so nicely on our shelves uh, beside these other rectangles, which are these other aesthetic works, right? And we've come to to think of uh, aesthetic forms largely in terms of uh, of rectangles of books and paintings and other things that, that sort of, uh, fit nicely into a grid and, uh, stack nicely on shelves, um, sort of chunks of, of media that are well formed and we can look at them and elucidate their, their qualities. Um, and, you know, I think that's, it's valuable for us in, 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 tipping us off to, to the fact that, that games are, are an aesthetic form, but it's also misleading. Um, and so part of the, the theme of my talk is that it's it's harder than it looks to fit games comfortably into our preconceptions of what aesthetics is, and that that's good. That's a good thing, because by and large, these preconceptions are are wrong. They're, they're limiting us in a way that they don't need to, and we're, we're so used to thinking of... of Aesthetic works as, as objects and as products um, and, and they're not really that, that, That's kind of a historical artifact Of where we are uh, in history um, So figuring out how games work As an aesthetic form Can actually give us deeper insight Into these other things as well um, So that's one of the things I'm going to be trying to get at um, So what is, what is aesthetics? What, what do I mean by, by, uh, by an aesthetic form? Um, so my understanding of, of aesthetics is pretty simple and straightforward, and I'm not trying to present anything that I think is, is unusual or controversial. Um, I'm trying to draw on a common uh, understanding of what an aesthetic form is. That uh, And I see it as being an experience that we engage with for its own sake, and it is set against normal life as a special domain of experience, uh, a domain in which we pursue a certain kind of pleasure and we explore a set of questions, questions about what is interesting, what is beautiful, uh, what is meaningful, what is important. And um, I think it's useful to just do a quick detour into a particular technical notion of, of aesthetics, uh, which comes out of uh, Immanuel Kant. and uh, which One of the, the four qualities that, was, that he felt, that Kant felt was necessary uh, for to identify an aesthetic judgment was this idea of disinterestedness, uh, which I think is worth looking at uh, a little bit uh, more closely. So the idea of disinterestedness is that when you are experiencing an aesthetic experience, um, you're looking at an object or or having an experience that you the the, the judgment that you're having about uh, that thing is is for its own sake. It's not because there is some utility to that thing uh, that you're excited about. So if you look at a juicy apple and you're thinking about how sweet it's gonna be when you bite into it and you're hungry, and you say, well, that apple looks good, and you're thinking about how you're going to convert it into calories and how that's gonna um, be useful for you, that's not an aesthetic judgment. When you look at a naked body and you're thinking about that person as a potential sexual partner and you're thinking, mm, maybe I'm gonna hook up with that person, that's, you know, I'm enjoying the, that aspect of what I'm looking at um, that that's not a that's not an aesthetic uh, kind of a pure aesthetic judgment uh, because really you're you're thinking about uh, the utility uh, that you're going to to get out of that um, and this is this is where um, so someone like uh, uh, my dear friend and, and and beloved loudmouth Eric Zimmerman um, on on Twitter recently was uh, responding to to this notion of uh, try to place games into a context of their potential for uh, utility, right, that games make us smarter, games make us better, games improve our vision, or games uh, help us, you know, learn something better, or, and he's, and he's saying here, you know, studies that, that prove that games are good for you ultimately cheapen and instrumentalize games. And I think that's exactly what he's getting at. Um, he goes on to say, we don't have to justify music or stories or images by demonstrating that they improve people. Uh, we, we shouldn't have to justify games. Like that. I think he's getting at this, this central idea of disinterestedness, right? That we, we don't ever have to ask, us, ask ourselves that question about, about, uh, uh, about music. Like, why, why, are you, why do you have music in your life? Well, it's, we kind of understand that that's what it means to be human, is to, to have music in your life, to have these things that, that transport you and that you uh, get some kind of transcendent uh, value out of uh, that uh, never reduces to utility, to pure utility. That if it, if it could, that would be uh, uh, problematic. That really uh, that goes without saying um, and it goes without needing to be justified that there are some things in our, in our life uh, that we do for their own sake, um, and they, they, they don't reduce down to a utility, and, uh, and that's one of the hallmarks of an aesthetic form. So I think that's what uh, Kant was getting at, and that's what uh, Zimmerman Eric is getting at. Um, okay, so, so this is what we mean by the claim that, that games are an aesthetic form, that, uh, that they're an exploration of, of you know, the, the questions of, of what is beautiful, what is interesting, what is important? What is meaningful? And it's important to, to point out that this exploration uh, always not only is it disinterested, but it always exceeds our ability to, to explain, to prove conclusively through logic or evidence that that something is one of these. That that you know. In other words, it's it's always a, a, a conversation that's happening, and it's it's never fully resolved. Like, there, there can be emerging consensus, uh, but it's never a matter of proof where someone is able to, to conclusively say uh, that, uh, you know, M- Miles Davis is is better than Chuck Mangione, right? Well, look, I counted up the number of notes. I've count, counted up the number of flats and sharps, you know, in kind of blue, and it's, this shows you why, why uh, Davis is better than Mangione. Um, like, that's... Like it's, it's it's silly that's why this painting by mark tanzi um, is 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 funny right that's the joke here in this painting that they're you know that they're they're kind of like looking for that's part of the joke in this painting is that' the, the sort of like measuring uh you, it, it's some empirical measurement of the of the quality of this painting by how good it is at fooling the eye uh the innocent eye of the of the the, the other cow um, uh so it, you know it's it's always an exercise, a, 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 a discursive exercise. Um, it, it's a dialogue with other people, um, and it's an attempt to produce both areas of consensus and areas of disagreement, and to articulate these different areas, right? It's that, that's the process that is the hallmark of an aesthetic form. Um, so an aesthetic domain is, is this ongoing conversation uh, about these questions. Uh, what is interesting, beautiful, meaningful, important, and it's a complex and rich conversation. It's a recursive, self-reflexive conversation about values, right? I mean, these, these, these are important questions, right? And this is a domain in which uh, these, these questions are asked and answered and argued about. Um, and so it's always, there's always an element of this kind of subjective and, and discursive process. This is uh, Pauline Kael and uh, Robert Criskow, uh two people who I think are one of the, the greatest writers uh, of, of, of all time really um, and uh, crit- wonderful uh, critics uh, who for me kind of embody the essence of, of what an aesthetic form is all about um, so if you notice I'm you know I'm not using this other word this other a word art um, which is sometimes you hear uh, you know there, there are other debates happening in the world of games and um, And you know, partly the use of the term aesthetic form is kind of a dodge to get around this word um, because I find it, I find this word unnecessarily contentious and confusing. Um, When I, I think when you use this word, people will either roll their eyes in skeptical exasperation or they will, they will close their eyes in, in reverential supplication um, but I think in either case, what you know they're not doing is actually looking at something, right? You know they're not; <laughs> their eyes aren't just looking at a thing and trying to figure it out, it, kind of honestly and simply and, and carefully. And I'm really interested in just looking at these things and being honest and and kind of taking some of the heat off of them because um, they're plenty hot in and of themselves. And just uh, kind of uh, looking at them and and thinking about them a little bit more dispassionately. So so um, so I so I prefer not to use that term. Uh, you know there are there are a couple of Associations that that particular word has. Uh, one of them is that art is a specific mode of operation, right? It's the creation and consumption of a certain type of of cultural product, which are gallery objects, basically. Which really have it's, whether or not that has much to do with games. It seems so obviously uh, a, a red herring, right? Um, and and yet, of course, that's one of the the main uh, purposes, purposes of art. Um, I think it's useful to to note here. Um, that, uh, that this, this process, this particular, cultu- particular cultural domain is, is super high status. Um, this is, these are scenes from a recent uh, Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art gala, which was actually, this party was designed by Marina uh, Abram- Abramovich, uh, the, the um, performance artist, the conceptual artist. Um, so she designed this party for, for, for LA Mocha and uh, Deborah Harry was there. It was fabulous, and it's pretty—it's pretty, it's pretty awesome-looking party. I mean, I totally would go to that party if I was invited. Um, but it's just that is just up there to remind, um, to remind us that you know this particular cultural domain is is super fancy, super high status, uh, very very elite, um, and we should recognize and and seek to avoid simple status seeking right, in this conversation about games and where they fit in culture. Like, it's hard to do, it's hard to resist that, um, but wishing to, to, you know, we should avoid wishing to claim for games the, the serious and important and privileged status of something like art in its mode of, of gallery object, you know, uh, uh, creation. Um, because, you know, it's because, basically because status wars suck, right, they're, they're kind of a waste of time, um, they're also kind of unavoidable, uh, you know, I, you, I can't say that, oh, we shouldn't care about this because that's what humans do, I mean, what we care about, right? We care about issues of where we sit in the hierarchy of, of what is considered important and valuable um, and, you know, you care about them, I care about them, we just care about them, they're a fact of human life, so I'm not saying don't fight status wars, I'm just saying we should be aware of them and pay attention to, to them and, and think about how they can distort your thinking. So that's basically all I'm saying there. Um, so the other, the other term, the other way that art is used often, this particular um, word, I said I wasn't gonna use it, now I'm using it, it's like half the, half the talk. Um, but it's often used as a superlative, uh, which is given to certain cultural products uh, because they surpass some qualitative threshold, um, so this is the this is the line that Jason Rohr talks about a lot. Um, a super smart guy, a great game designer, and a friend of mine. Um, he often talks about the cultural line in the sand that games have yet to cross, uh, which you know it kind of makes intuitive sense, and you understand what he's talking about. So it's you can't knock him too much for 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 this stance. But on the other hand, it's kind of confusing because the question, like, have no games crossed this line or or have some games crossed this line? We're waiting for a certain percentage of games to cross this line um, and it's also you know, I, I think the problem with this stance is that it can be really hard to place individual works of culture above and below this line. So I guess Roy Lichtenstein lives above this line and, and Charles Schultz lives below um, but you know, it's it can be quite confusing, especially when you consider that simply declaring which side of this line you're on can be a move in the whole business of, of creating cultural works, like as it is in the Liechtenstein, uh, you know, example, right? Um, and um, so I, I find it to to be um, overly simplistic to imagine uh, art in this kind of threshold uh, uh, function, um, and. Um, so instead of using the term art as, as a demarcation that we can consider, um, you know, to be this kind of forcing function of cultural works, I really uh, like to use the, the, the term, um, you know, aesthetic form uh, to, to consider the whole domain, whole domains of, of, of culture. Um, and, um, and I think music is really the best example here. Uh, music is an aesthetic form. And it, you know, all music participates in the domain of aesthetics. Everything from, from classical symphonies to karaoke to, to just whistling, you know, to whistling in a room, to whistling the Nutcracker Suite, you know, when you walk into a room, um, to, to the little chip in a, in a birthday card that, that plays Happy Birthday, right? The, you know, jingles and lullabies and, and intricate jazz solos and ringtones. Um, and, this, you know, so these are all... These are, all of these works participate in this cultural domain. And um, so, this, so saying that, a cultural, that, that, that an aesthetic form um, is, is more like this is not to deny that there is something like Jason Rohr's line, right? That there is a spectrum of, of good and bad and that we make judgments about these things and some of them are important and some of them are not. You know, within the aesthetic domain of, of music, we clearly run the spectrum from complex, profound, difficult... And sublime to simple and disposable and accessible and banal, um, and uh, or, but yeah, maybe that's a better um, example of that. Um, but you know, it's it's not always that easy, right? This this spectrum is multidimensional and it's complicated, and it's challenging to navigate. So sometimes it's easy to place a work on this spectrum, but most of the time, it's not. And more importantly, it is the process itself of placing works on this spectrum that is one of the most important pleasures of engaging with an aesthetic form. Um, so for me, that's the, the, the central thing. It's, it's that this is the, the essential quality of engaging with an aesthetic form is thinking about where works go in in this domain and on this spectrum and and making those judgments and having those conversations um, not starting out not seeking out works that are above that line in order to like get the value out of them in order to crack them open and and get the good you know aesthetic value out of them um, but but to engage in this process of of uh of, of navigating through the spectrum and placing things and 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 through that process like Forming value judgments and changing, changing your own value judgments, right? I mean, part, everyone, I think, has this experience of what it means to engage with an aesthetic form that it is at least partly a process of constant self-overcoming, right? I think um, in thinking about this issue, one of the things that I've become fascinated with is how taste functions cognitively, right? And if you pay attention to your own thinking, you can often catch yourself um, in the process of, of, of sort of consciously forming and constructing and fine tuning your own taste. And it's kind of a wonderful thing, right? When you decide, you know what, I'm gonna just, you know what, I'm, g- I'm gonna get into this, 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 this thing, right? I'm gonna get into The Walking Dead or whatever. It's like, I'm gonna be, consciously decide that you're going to like, you know, perform that, that, you're gonna meet that thing halfway and you're gonna kind of like, you know, make the effort to like, like something and, um, and yet, often, we, we then at the same time step back and we, we think of our taste as a given thing that, that works are, are interacting with. So that, that kind of dialectic tension between, um, between these judgments I'm making as being me applying a kind of internal ruler that I have and the process of crafting that ruler, um, to me that's, that's one of the most essential things about, about an aesthetic form. Um, and. Even beyond that, if when we're able to place work on this uh, on this spectrum, right, where even when we're comfortable saying that 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 Pandoresky or Schoenberg is is more complex and profound and difficult and sublime than than um, than, than Big L or the monkeys, um, it doesn't really help us that much in determining its value to us in our lives. Um, we can correctly identify one of them as, as more complex and still find the other one more interesting, and more beautiful, more meaningful, uh, or, or more moving, or more important uh, than the first. Um, I think that this notion that I have of how an aesthetic form works um, is, I, I hope that it's familiar to you and you're like, yeah, that's kind of that makes sense to me. Um, but I think it is kind of modern. I think this is sort of the modern way of thinking about um, aesthetics. Um, this is, uh, I'm going to read you a, a quote from Clive Bell, uh, who was a member of the Bloomsbury Group and um, uh, a critic. He was uh, primarily a, a critic of the visual arts. Uh, but here he's talking about music um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, And um, he talks about how in going to a concert, maybe at the very beginning when he's very alert and he's working hard, he can catch a glimpse, even though he's not super astute at musical uh, appreciation, he can catch a glimpse of of what's great about a piece of music. But then later on, and here I quote, tired or perplexed, I let slip my sense of form. My aesthetic emotion collapses, and I begin weaving into the harmonies that I cannot grasp the ideas of life. Incapable of feeling the austere emotions of art, I began to read into the musical forms human emotions of terror and mystery, love and hate, and spend the minutes, pleasantly enough, in a world of turbid and inferior feeling. At such times, were the grossest pieces of poetic representation, the song of a bird, the galloping of horses, the cries of children, or the laughing of demons, to be introduced into the symphony, I should not be offended. Very likely I should be pleased, they would afford new points of departure for new trains of romantic feeling or heroic thought. I know very well what has happened, I have been using art as a means to the emotions of life and reading into it the ideas of life. I have been cutting blocks with a razor. I have tumbled from the superb peaks of aesthetic exaltation to the snug foothills of warm humanity. It is a jolly country, no one need be ashamed of enjoying himself there. Only no one who has ever been on the heights can help feeling a little crestfallen in the cozy valleys, and let no one imagine because he has made merry in the warm tilth and quaint nooks of romance that he can even guess at the austere and thrilling raptures of those who have climbed the cold white peaks of art. Um, so, uh, so that so that's the you know that's the view that's one view, and I think it kind of captures in a way. Um, a mode of thinking about this stuff, which maybe is not modern, but it's still present to us. I mean, I think that we, we still, I mean, that's a little bit what Jason Rohr uh, talks about when, when he's talking about this threshold. Um, and um, let me contrast that with a, with a wonderful piece from this guy. Um, so like 100 years later, um, this guy, Carl Wilson, in his terrific uh, 33 to 3rd book uh, called Let's Talk About Love, which is about Celine Dion, actually. Um, he... Um, <laughs> He has a a, a totally different take. So um, he says, yet there are so many ways of loving music. You can love a song for what you take to be its depth, formal elegance and lasting value, the traditional parameters of purest art appreciation. But you can also love a song for its novelty as a fresh variation on the same old thing, in which case you may love it only briefly and later be fond of it in memoriam of that love as a reminder of the pleasantness of having a past. The critic Joshua Clover has argued that loving novelty is perfectly appropriate because the material conditions of mass culture make it ever-renewable. If you wear out one pop song, there will always be another. Ranking lastingness above novelty is a holdover from an aesthetic of scarcity, predating the age of mechanical or digital reproduction. So today we can love a song for being one of many, part of the crowd, rather than as an intimate partner. A rich taste life will include both, just as a rich erotic life includes infatuations and flings, as well as long-term relationships because they do different things to us. You you can also love a song for its datedness, for the social history its anachronism reveals. You can love a song for how its sentimentality gives a workout to the emotions. You can love it for its foreignness, for the glimpse it gives you of human variability. You can love it for its exemplarity, for, for being the ultimate disco floor filler or schmaltzy mother song. You can love it for representing a place, a community, even an ideology in the brokenhearted way I love the Internationale. You might love it for its popularity, for linking you to the crowd. Being popular may not make it good, but it does make it a good and a service, and you can listen to learn what it is doing for other people. As critic Ann Powers argued on her essay Bread and Butter Songs, you might even love a song like Living on a Prayer or My Heart Will Go On for its meaningful unoriginality, for stirring up feelings in an everyday, readily absorbed way, rather than in a shockwave. Um, so for me, I don't know, I just find that to be so much more of what I think of as what it means to engage with an aesthetic form, and I find that super relevant to games when I think about my own relationship to games, um, and when I think about how games actually work. They they feel like an aesthetic form that works m- more in that way than in, than in the Clive Bell uh, method, and this is not meant to be kind of a radical postmodern take. It's, it's meant to be uh, just a, Sober, common sense view that reflects how cultural works actually fit into the lives of contemporary people. Um, so, in some in some ways, you know, games, uh, especially video games, they're quite obviously this type of thing, right? That they, alongside songs and TV shows and movies, um, that it's easy to see them fitting into this spectrum, and and it's easy to see how we make uh, judgments about them, and and we use them to ask these questions. Um, So I think it's useful to step back and consider the possibility of what other type of things games could be um, if they if they're not an aesthetic form, Uh, hobby, a pastime, recreation, distraction, intoxicant, uh, tranquilizer, Um, and I think actually it's mostly correct to say that games are these types of things in addition to being an aesthetic form. That it's really Instead of an either-or question, um, we say that really games are both. Uh, And in in the same way that paintings are also decoration, and music is also a ritual, uh, for example. Um, And I think it's important to think about this question, about what it means for for something to be both uh, a a pharmaceutical and an aesthetic work, right? Uh, a tranquilizer and an aesthetic work. And, uh, but I think we kind of have to admit that that's, that's what games are. Um, and I want to really make the case for honesty, uh, in, in addressing these questions. I, I want to pay attention to the reality of my own experience and what do I get out of games. And I know that it's not just Clive Bell's cold white peaks, uh, but sometimes it is right? Sometimes it really is. Like, I recognize that. I know what he's talking about. And I recognize that in my relationship to games, my experience with games, uh, occasionally getting getting those glimpses. Um, But often it's something simpler. Something like hypnosis or hysteria or hallucinations. And I have to admit that this is what I want. Um, I don't want it to be all cold white peaks. And you know, maybe I would like a few more Cold White Peaks in, in, in my life, um, but I would be lying if I said that I didn't want these other things too. Um, and I think there is a relationship in games that is very strongly uh, that, that noticeable, uh, but that's also present in, in all aesthetic forms, of this tension between their primal pleasures and, and their more elevated kind of transcendental qualities. Um, that, you know, for example, if you think about the, if you think about film, and one of the, the primal pleasures of film, I think, is just looking at attractive people and their mating rituals, right? You're looking at alpha people, right? Alpha members are, we're primates, and we're kind of like, we see attractive, high-status people, you know, engaging in, in social rituals, and it's fascinating. What is he gonna say to her? What is she gonna do? Um, and, you know, just like, just sitting in the dark and kind of drooling and watching that thing is one of the things that's happening in film. That doesn't make film bad. It's not that film would be better without it. Um, and, or, or if you think about modernist literature, right, and the tension there between the simple childish pleasures of storytelling, of just that it's a machine and it sets up this little suspenseful thing of what's going to happen next and you're just sitting, in the lap of the author, you know, wanting to know what happens next, and, and, and then the simple satisfaction of, of, of discovering what happens next, and having, having that suspense resolved, um, and if you think about how modernist uh, fiction uh, goes about kind of like wrestling with that primal pleasure and trying to kind of suppress it, uh, but the point is that it's always there, and it's the, the wrestling is good. I'm not saying there's something wrong with wanting to suppress that and wanting to see what we could, is it possible to have literature without that primal thing? Um, because I actually think that you know, it's great in Joyce when he's like, trying to see if it's possible to like, write without you know, tapping into those, those simple pleasures. Um, but I, I, I think that there, there's an, you know, the, those primal pleasures are part of the engine that, that makes uh, these works go. Um, all of them, right? They're all, whether you are submitting to those primal pleasures and indulging in them or kind of holding them at, at arm's length and trying to see if it's possible to suppress them or trying to, to deny them. And uh, like all of those strategies are, are part of, of the moves that go into making works of culture. Um, and so I think it's important to just uh, acknowledge that, that that tension is always there, and that it's an important part of, of what makes something an aesthetic form. And it's never a question of either or. Um, oh, yeah, and this is maybe one of the reasons I think this, is because I was one of the people that made Drop Seven, and um, I, you know, it's like I'm pr- like I never set out to make something like Tetris, right? If you would ask me as a game designer what my interests are, Uh, I would have said, well, not to make a simple, addictive puzzle game, um, you know, this kind of pure little abstract system that you can engage with, uh, but um, that ended up happening. And now I'm really proud of it, right? So maybe I've changed my (laughs) my aesthetic beliefs to match what happened in the world. uh, But when I think about why people play Drop7, you know, I do think that there are some White peaks in there, right? I think there are some some things in Drop Seven that are that are moments of like clarity and insight, and and I think they're they're kind of like distinct and beautiful, and you're aware of of like making this little cognitive breakthrough, um, and it's kind of a little bit hard and it's a little bit tricky, and then when you do, it's like ah yes, it's deeply satisfying in that way. But I know that the one of the main reasons people blade Drop Seven is is for comfort, right? That you know you're you're just to, it's something that you can, you can lie in bed and you can, you can play it. And it just sort of, it's, it's, you can turn your mind off a little bit, right? It is something like a tranquilizer. Like I'm aware of that. You have to be honest, right? I can't kid myself. Um, I know that that's one of the things people do with this is that it's a little machine that you plug into your head and that it, it unfolds and it expands until there's no room left for you in your own head. And sometimes that's what we want, right? That's what we want uh, from games. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's important to be honest about wh- what it is that even if these things are in aesthetic form, what, how, does, how do they work? In our lives. How do we actually use them? Not how do we think we other people want us to say that we use them or what we think we should be using them for? Um, but what we because then like what do we want out of them? And then let's get more of that, right? That's the essence. Like if we're gonna use critical judgment and 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 smart kind of like thinking of these things as an aesthetic form, like that that's the only reason to do that in my mind, is to make them better, is to make our experience of them better, to get more of whatever it is that we want out of them. And and t- to allow them to 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 function in, in the best way as, as an aesthetic form. So so yeah, I think one of the things that games do for me and for a lot of people is they comfort us. Right? They're in some ways they're like lullabies a lot of the time. A lot of rock songs are lullabies if you think about them. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay, baby. I mean that's so much. That's if you think of the message, the the, the lyrics of so many rock songs. You know that's. That's what they're saying, um, and I think in a weird way that's what, you know, that's what games like Drop7 uh, say a lot of the time. I have this term that I invented for, to <laughs> capture this um, because there is, you know, this, this meme in games of like, you know, the great cultural work, Casablanca. Will games ever be able to produce a thing like Casablanca? Um, but this is a, a, a term I made up to, to capture what it might be like to create something that, that was a profound masterpiece. There was also a familiar, reassuring, comforting, something that you wrap around yourself before drifting off to sleep. Um, but we don't really have a culture of making blankets that are also art. Well, actually, I, we, we, some of us do, I guess, <laughs> have, <laughs> um, have that. Um, so, so if this is our claim, uh, that games are this type of thing, a, a domain in which we engage in a conversation about these questions, Uh, a conversation about values, Uh, then next we can ask, what kind of aesthetic form are games? And this is my response to that question. Games are the aesthetics of interactive systems. They're the domain in which we ask, what makes interactive systems interesting, beautiful, meaningful, important? And this is especially important to us because interactivity is our steam. Uh, What steam was to the industrial age, interactivity is to us. So it's not just that our world is defined by and and shot through with interactive systems, uh, but also interactivity is our governing conceptual model, our structuring element, uh, a new and powerful Way for organizing our thoughts about the world. So we're seeing the world less and less as a set of physical forces and pressures operating on physical objects, and more and more as a set of logical systems. Uh, these, these overlapping logical systems that are constructed out of rules and, and symbols and the power of choice and consequence, of action and outcome, of randomness and order, of uncertainty and knowledge. This is I think one of the reasons that games are so ascendant as a cultural form, that they are an exploration of the beauty and meaning of this ubiquitous and important aspect of the contemporary world around us. Um, That's what all games are, right? All games are the aesthetic of interactive systems. Uh, They're an aesthetic form that has this deep and essential relationship to the guiding, material and conceptual framework of the present moment, of where we are in the world as humans, historically. Uh, and that's one of the reasons they're so exciting, I think. Um, so at this point, I think it's useful to, to talk about the relationship between digital games and non-digital games. Because video games are clearly different from non-video games. Uh, and it's reasonable to ask how important is that difference? Um, there are, you know is a type of game that is very dominant in in progressive video game discourse and critical theory, uh, which is the single player story driven game. Uh, And and it's interesting because these games are more like traditional aesthetic objects. The, The fact that these games are more obviously aesthetic objects is one of the reasons that it now feels natural and commonsensical to think of games as an aesthetic form. Uh, so I think we should seriously consider the possibility that maybe digital games are a distinct kind of work that is essentially and fundamentally different from non-digital games. And this, is a, this, this new form uh, is an aesthetic form and, and other, other kind of games aren't, right? I think it's worth taking that argument uh, seriously. Um, so we can, one of the things we can do is, is look at the properties of this new form that distinguish it uh, from older forms uh, other games. That's Stu Unger, by the way, the great, the great poker player. great tragic poker player. Um, so this new form of, of game uh, focuses on, has a kind of a primary focus on representation, on theme, on environment, and on story, and then uh, it shares a lot of properties uh, with more traditional forms of, of pre-video games. Uh, the uh, st- Problem solving and goals and constraints and a, a primary focus on meaningful choice and action, uh, which is all really to say, interactivity. Right. All of the things in the, in the shared set really are the 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 ways in which games uh, are an exploration of interactive systems. Um, so first, we can ask ourselves, well, does this new does this the set of properties on the left does it constitute something essential and fundamental and new? in games, and I really think that the answer is no, it doesn't. Um, And I think it's, you can, another thing that you can say is that maybe it's possible that we're seeing the emergence of something uh, which is not a game at all, but uses that sort of like shares as a a vestige of its common origin the term game with these other things, uh, but is really something more like an interactive experience that's not a game. Um, and so we have this idea of the not game, which is something that, uh, that, the, the Tale of Tales people, uh, have a term that they have invented, uh, but even, so that's an example of, of, you know, a sort of like underground indie, uh, art movement approach, but really even in modern triple A mainstream video games, you see a lot of this kind of emerging, right? Heavy rain, um, even something like Uncharted, even something like Red Dead Redemption, to a certain degree, uh, it's, it's a bit like, oh, this is a new kind of interactive storytelling and environmental exploration. And I think it's, you know, reasonable to argue that, hey, this could be a new aesthetic form, and we, we call it a game, but it's not really, and it's something else. Um, and I think that that's i think that's great i'm excited to see this this form emerge if it is in fact and i'm excited to 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 uh to interact with it and and uh i look forward to to seeing more works in the genre but i actually think that this doesn't help us explain the qualities of existing video games so again we return back to kind of an honesty in thinking about our own lives how games fit into them um i don't think that you can carve off this tiny little corner um, and say, this is the, the aesthetic uh, expression of, of games, and the rest of them are something that's not an aesthetic form. Because um, I think we still have to talk about the experience that we have with the other forms of games. And there, also, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that there, there, there are many examples of successful and important and beautiful and meaningful video games that don't have that, the set of properties on the left. But there are very few, if any, examples of successful, important, meaningful, beautiful video games that don't have the set of properties on the right, this kind of shared set of properties. So I think if we just, you know, use that as a, as a guideline, um, I think we can answer, uh, you know, I think we can answer that question, no, that this, this is not, there is not a, a separation, a, a kind of fundamental separation uh, between... Uh, the, the aesthetic, you know, the properties of video games as an aesthetic form and the other kinds of games that, that we play in our life. Um, and we also have, I think we need to look at how video games fit into our lives as players, psychologically and emotionally and culturally. And we, are they like other kinds of games? And I think by and large, the answer is yes. I think the way that Madden fits into the life of a person who plays Madden is very similar to the way that Football fits into that p- person's life, um, you know? I, so I, I think it's natural to, to place video games within the broader spectrum of games in general. Um, at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that it is true that all games, digital and otherwise, have a special, deep, profound relationship to computation, um, which is this is my uh, confrontational way of saying that, that all games are digital. So, Uh, I think if you look at any game closely, you discover that it is engaged in a very curious interaction between the discrete and the continuous. That it involves an exploration of algorithms and rules and procedures and numbers and logic and quantitative reason. This is quite easy to see with chess. Right? This is the canonical example, right? Uh, you look at the chessboard, and it's easy to see it that it's a kind of calculating device. Uh, the, and also to, to understand that the pieces are clearly material stand-ins for immaterial logical symbols, that it doesn't matter where on the square the, the pawn is placed. This, the pawn is either on this square or on the other square. Right? In fact, it can, there's an infinite if you look at the, the actual physical piece, there's, there's an infinite. Um, sort of smoothly uh, gradated uh, spectrum of this analog spectrum of where the piece is on the square. But it doesn't matter because the piece is really only there as, a, as a, a, a logical symbol within the operation of chess, right? So here we can say, ah, yes, chess is a kind of calculating device. Chess is, in a way, digital, right? It's discrete in this sense. Um, but I think you can also, if you look closely enough, see this with something like football, right? So the, look at the football field. The football field carves space up into discrete quantities, like a chessboard. So the ball can be anywhere in this kind of like smooth analog space, uh, but actually, after a a play, the ball is placed on one of these notches, right? And that's where it is in the game. Um, And at the same time, also, time itself is carved up into these kind of discrete units in football. You have plays that carve up time. in this, in this way. And each play transforms the messy and continuous and ambiguous mess of the real world into a discrete outcome. Right? That's kind of what football is, is a machine for taking the chaos of these rowdy young men and, and producing uh, an outcome. Uh, which is kind of like calculating which team is better at the game at this given moment, right? Um, So I think that you can kind of see the tension between the the continuous and the discrete, and you can see this this process of calculation. You can see this relationship uh, between, you know, between the world and information that that resides in all games. Um, And another kind of, you know, confrontational and ridiculous way of saying that is that games invented computers right? That, that games were always about exploring these ideas, you know, waiting for computers to come around, and that now we're living in the computer age, games are coming into their own. Uh, and, and that there is this, that's, I think, one of the reasons that there's this deep relationship between, between games and science. Um, the, um, this is C.P. Snow. And, uh, He's the, the guy who, in the middle of the 20th century, presented this idea of the two cultures problem, right? That in, in, on, in the university, you have these two different domains and they don't speak to each other. Maybe not at MIT. Maybe it's not such a bad problem here. Um, but you have the humanities over here uh, and, and the people who you know, study the, the works of Shakespeare. And then you have the, the sciences over here and the people who, who understand uh, the second law of thermodynamics. and the, these people aren't really—they don't go to the same parties. They don't talk to each other. That there's a whole, whole sets, whole separate sets of what of, of works that you should—that what does it mean to be well informed, uh, to be a well-educated uh, person has kind of split. It's almost like you know the the humanities corpus callosum has been cut, and that we have these two different uh, domains, and and there's there's very little overlap. Um, and I and I think that's. Still true to a large degree, right? And I still think you, there, there is this, this tension between these two worlds, um, and I one of the things that to me is exciting about games is that they present a way of unifying these two worlds, right? Um, not just because there is uh, not just because there is so much engineering in the creation of, of video games that um, you know the, the the production of video games requires. Uh, kind of like deep technical knowledge, and the and our and our technical skill as it evolves, and, and our our understanding of software development um, as it evolves is also having this huge impact on our aesthetic, uh, uh, you know, understanding of these things and our and our engagement with these things. It's not just that there is a lot of that, right? But it's also that there is science in games that which is kind of a unique property of games as an aesthetic form, right? That, that part of what you do uh, in a game is search for objective truth, right? That in a, in a chess position, like a certain chess, you can look at a certain chess position and you can say, this is a loss for white. White has lost in this position. And that's either a true statement or not. And in some ways, the the entire history of chess has been a search for the truth of chess, has been kind of a scientific process. But for its own sake, right? That's the essence. Like, that, that what games do is they take this process of problem solving and the application of rational, kind of logical thinking in search of you know, particular outcomes, and they are a, an aesthetic form that is about that process. Um, and to me, that's one of the things that makes them exciting as a potential bridge across these, these two cultures, right? Because um, they are a way of, you know, they, they, they're, they're a, they're a, a discovery, a, 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 the, the conversation that we're having about these, about these values when we engage with gains includes in it the very process of science right? The very process of, of searching for objective truth, which is, again, the thing that you don't get in aesthetic forms, right? The essence of an aesthetic form is that it is, it is a subjective. So you have this, this wonderful kind of like inversion in which there is objectivity, but it's inside. It's inside the aesthetic form. It, doesn't, it still doesn't answer the question of what, what game is more beautiful or, or meaningful. What, what games should we be playing, you know? Um, and yet when we do play a game, uh, we are tapping into the, the, the process of science and, and the process of, of logical thought. Um, in some ways, I like to think of it as an escape from the prison house of instrumental reason. Um, that we live our lives subject to the, uh, to the function of instrumental reason, right? We, we wake up in the morning, we need to get out of bed in order to go over to the door, to turn the doorknob, to open it up, to step outside. Right? That if we want to move through life, we're constantly applying our ability to, uh, you know, we're using our minds in order to accomplish things in the world, right? Just to get through the day. And in games, we are using our minds to accomplish things just for its own sake, right? We have this disinterestedness, this process of, of and it's like the way that paintings are about looking, right? We're constantly looking. Everything we every second of the day we're looking. And then we look at a painting and for a moment we're aware of looking. We're like, oh yeah, that's what looking is about. That's what vision is. Like you get a glimpse of yourself looking, right? Games are about that for thinking and doing. Right? Games give us a glimpse into this medium that we are surrounded, the the water that we swim through as fish, is thinking and doing, Uh, and in games, because they are about plunging more deeply into that process for its own sake, are also about stepping back from that process. And and for the first time, kind of catching a glimpse of it. Um, There is a, uh, a 20th century sociologist and philosopher, Ernest Gellner, who has a great quote, which is that the positivists are right for Hegelian reasons. And I've always liked that quote, because really what he's saying is that, he's he's highlighting the fact that the enlightenment, right, the set of values that is about rationality and about instrumental reason, has no way of justifying itself, right? those values, why should I be rational and logical? Why, why should we be empiricists? Why should we have this, this form of thinking? Um, that form of thinking itself has really nothing to say. Like, all it can say is that it's good at building bridges and going to the moon and saving babies right, uh, from disease. But it doesn't say why we should be doing those things instead of you know, worshiping a god or, or, or doing something else. Right? It, it, it can't justify itself uh, as an ideology, as a way of looking at the world. Um, and, and I think in a, in a funny way, games are, a, a way in, 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 they have a relationship to the, the, present moment, which is that they are, so for me, like, all aesthetic frameworks are embedded in some kind of, like, historical understanding. So, so I'm not gonna read from this, but I just brought this, this Adorno book, this wonderful Adorno book about aesthetic theory, and for, for Adorno, the, the, the context was for thinking about aesthetics was very much thinking about history unfolding according to Hegelian principles and this sense of progress and moving forward and understanding, you know, how we can achieve a better, more just society and so forth. Um, And that was the context in which he said. And for me, this is the context in which I think of games, right? Is this... Their, their relationship to the Enlightenment project, right? Their, their relationship to rationality and problem-solving and instrumental reason, um, because they are a way in which we can kind of move through, all the way through. They're sort of intentionally irrational. They, they move all the way through to the very, to the very edge of what is uh, the application of, of, of this, this type of... Uh, of cognitive uh, experience uh, and come out the other side in this search for answers to these questions of of value of wh- how we should be living our lives and what we find important and beautiful. Um, so let's, let's say we're ready to accept this claim. Then uh, the question becomes, what next? And I think the challenge is really appreciating the what it what games the unique beauty that, that games have uh, to, to offer us. Uh, and the, the way that I, I think about this is, uh, using the concept of, of, a of, uh, of an idea called deep play, which is kind of borrowed from, uh, by analogy with, with Paulina Liveros and, uh, the, her concept of deep listening. So she was a composer uh, who wrote a lot about, uh, this process of how you can engage with a piece of music. Um, and for me, deep play is about close and honest observation of the pleasures and meanings of games and how they actually fit into our lives as experiences, um, because games are certainly beautiful and meaningful, but locating that beauty and meaning is hard. Uh, and it's, and I think it's important to do this hard work because that's the main job of someone interested in this subject. Um, and so we, we have to start by reminding ourselves that games are systems, right? Games are the aesthetic of of these interactive systems, right? They're they're not objects, um, that they are processes. And uh, I think that, you know, one thing that um, I like to to, uh, speak out against is, I think, a sort of conventional model uh, borrowed from traditional uh, aesthetics or other forms of aesthetics, um, which is, uh, the, the idea of the message model of meaning, right? That the, uh, that the meaning of a work, of an aesthetic work, is really coming from the author to the audience through the work as a conduit. Um, and uh, this is something that games can do. I think, by and large, it's not the, their their primary mode of... of Aesthetic uh, uh, action, um, and you know you can see the uh, you can see how this is problematic um, when when you try to locate the beauty in in something like football, right? That uh, the the beauty of football is certainly not we don't find it in the rule book. Um, we often find it in the the performance right, of, of the, this be, this, the athletic beauty of, of football as performance. And you see that sometimes in video games as well. Like, so Clint Hawking, the game designer, um, recently has been talking a lot about this idea that uh, the beauty of games is really in the performance of the player and giving the player the ability to express themselves through the dynamics of play is where the beauty is located. Um, but I really don't think it's, it's in either of those places. I, I don't think you can, you can find the beauty easily uh, in either the the mind of the author uh, or the the moment of of uh, a beautiful performance of a player, um, but really, that that it happens in, in both of these places uh, and and more. That that a, that a game is not a, a statement. Um, that there is a lot of of communication that t- that takes place in and through games, but it's not it's not a communication from a sender to a receiver, um, and players are not an audience. And, and unlike messages, which transmit meaning, uh, games are, are more like meaning machines. They're like meaning networks. And I think players and designers are both agents uh, that are collaborating within a system uh, out of which meanings emerge and out of which beauty and, and meaningful and interesting uh, and valuable experiences emerge. Uh, so in this sense, I really think of it as uh, conversational, that it's neither you know, you, it's, it's, it's neither one or both, right? That the, the beauty of something like Far Cry 2 is in both in Clint's vision and in his twisted soul and the ideas he has about, about war and violence and games and what they can and should be, and also in, in, the, in the play of, of someone who um, wants to find out whether it's possible to, you know, play through using only pistols and, and never restarting. Um, and and what they're both and, and they're both of them in conversation with a third thing, which is just this little corner of the universe, right? That that is this little system, which is the actual material system of Far Cry Two, as embodied in this set of, of rules and in the code, uh, right? Because the, and there's truth there, right? That 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 truth is also is a voice in in this conversation. So I think it's kind of a three-way conversation between those those three agents. Um, it's very hard to locate the beauty of games as a set of properties of a discrete object. Um, if you look at a painting, it's very easy uh, to think of a painting as being a rectangle that's a container for a certain set of properties, right? There's certain colors in there, there are certain brushstrokes, there's certain lines, a certain, you know, and you can, elumi- you can elucidate those different properties and, and extract a, an aesthetic judgment uh, based on that, and it's really hard to do that for games. Uh, Games are not rectangles. Games are not tidy works. Uh, they're not a container of qualities and attributes that we can point to and admire. Um, this is a, a Jack Kerouac. His, his whole life was, um, uh, had this fantasy baseball league that he created and, and played. Um, he started when he was a kid, but then he did it his whole life. Uh, and so this is, a, this is a card from Jack Kerouac's uh, Fantasy Baseball League. He would invent these teams, he would staff them with players that he, um, that he invented, he would play out entire seasons, um, he, would have, like, uh, <laughs> he would have conflicts between the players and the managers, and he would like, have, like, secondary, like, write newspapers about what was happening in this league. Um, so maybe it's kind of crazy, but it's also, I think, a good example of like, this is the kind of thing that we have to account for if we want to talk about an aesthetics of games. Right, that it's not enough to just account for uh, shadow of the colossus. That we have to talk about this and how this fit into Jack Kerouac's life. Um, and to me, it's always important to, like, I I often think about things like this, and like Nabokov's uh, butterfly uh, collecting, right, as examples of. I mean, these. So Nabokov and Kerouac are the people we think of as uh, these are the guys that make beautiful things. But you know, where did they seek beauty in their lives? Like, I think Kerouac is in this you know, doing this and engaging with the system over the course of he's seeking a kind of beauty, right? There's meaning there. It's interesting, it's beautiful, it's meaningful. It's not just a habit that he had, right? There's clearly something amazing and, and cool and beautiful going on um, in, in his engagement with this thing. So I, I want to, you know, I want to account for that. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to do that. Like, games are a very strange mix of artifact, and performance, and space, and practice, and habit, and behavior, and games are are like cities, and languages, and rituals. Uh, You can't simply locate the beauty and meaning of games in the particular attributes and qualities of game as object. You, You know, in some ways games are are more like musical instruments, right? Um, that games are, are something in between uh, a composition and a performance and an instrument. Um, I think that that many great games are, are composed iteratively, not just in the in the iterative design process, but in the sense that they are first composed like a work and then played. Like an instrument by a community of players who themselves are composing a kind of work improvisationally. And, and that that collaboration um, is like a third kind of work in and of itself that's outside the discrete work that was authored um, and, but is not simply located in, in the moment of performance, right? It's this it is the community itself in a way. Um, and, I often like to think about the question, uh, why is Go beautiful? Go is one of those games that people will put above that dotted line. You know, if, if you press them on it, right? You press Chris Hecker on, on what game should, you know, is, is clearly a masterpiece. Um, and I think it's interesting to ask why is Go beautiful, right? Go is beautiful. I mean, it, there are many qualities of Go that you can point to. It's elegance and, and, its, and it's simplicity and it's depth. Um, And you can say, yes, we've been playing Go for, for hundreds and hundreds of years because it is so beautiful, because it has these qualities. But I think it's also true to say that Go is beautiful because we've been playing it for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? That in a way, Go is just a corner of the universe that somebody carved out and pointed to and said... Yeah, what about this, you know? And it's, because, yeah, Go is great. I think the attributes of Go are great. If you look at their, it would be, and I find Go to be extraordinarily beautiful. One of the most beautiful works of human culture that's ever been made. But I also think if you look, at, it's like, there's something also a little bit arbitrary about Go, right? There are many things that are close to Go, and, and I think that Go is a local maximum in terms of like the size of the board and the set of the rules, but it's also just a corner of the universe, right that we that we carved out and decided to excavate, and it is that excavation and in the way it's been done, and the things that we've discovered through that process that are what over time has made go something more than just a board game into something profoundly beautiful and, and meaning um, and, and meaningful um, so Games that are more similar to the familiar and accepted aesthetic works uh, that we all are kind of, these rectangles that we all are comfortable with, uh, are the the things that clue us in to the status of games as an aesthetic form. Um, But it is the distributed and emergent and tricky to locate qualities of games as experiences and communities and process and performance and this multi-layered composition and, and these ongoing conversations that are the important and essential aesthetic qualities of games. And we should not attempt to shoehorn games into familiar models of aesthetic objects. Instead, we should be willing to, if necessary, abandon or mutate our conventional understanding of aesthetics our models that we have of tidy works and, and transmitted messages. Uh, Because it's, I think it's also true that poems and, and paintings and films and songs, that these things are also less like tidy works than our, than our most simple and comfortable aesthetic models uh, would have us think. That, that these things are, are also uh, more like, cities, and, and languages, um, and, and spaces, and, and rituals. Uh, and so that's a way, I think, in which really plunging in to, to a serious and honest uh, study of the aesthetic values of games will actually help us understand aesthetics in, in a broader sense. And that's where I stop. Um, and invite, uh, I guess, a conversation. Right? It's a colloquium. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. So let's colloquialize. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: thank you very much for. Uh, this yeah. Uh, thank you very, thank you very much, Frank, for for for, for a great talk. Uh, we've got uh, how much time for Q and A? It's six uh, fifteen right now. Okay, uh, 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 all right, about 20, 25 minutes, this is recorded, so I'm going to be running around with this microphone. Please use the microphone. If you just blurt out a question, then everyone in this room will hear it, but it will never be recorded, and that just makes things annoying uh, for later. So I'll stop Clara over here. Oh, sure, are you uh, to um,
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, so. hi. <laughs> I'm Clara. Hi, Frank. Hello. Um. So thanks for the talk that was... that certainly kept me thinking. And the first thing that I started thinking is whether the status of an object as an aesthetic form can change and whether we're not doing that to games. Um, When you study history of art, one of the first things that you study is plates and dishes and cups. And those were... We think of them as aesthetic forms because we study them as history of art, but were they intended is that? I mean, it's, it's not like reading intention is not the point here, but it's like, is there a point where something stops being uh, n- a non-aesthetic form? And, and the, the main question here is what is not an aesthetic form here? Like, where do we stop right. thinking of these things as aesthetics form?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's largely not a, a property of the thing, and it's really just a property of what we decide to, to do, uh, what we decide to talk about and how we decide to talk about it. Um, so but the plates are a good example. They're clearly not, they're, they're neither an aesthetic object or not outside of the context of how we're thinking about them. Um, so maybe it's more appropriate to, for me to say that games Games, that, hey, games are now in aesthetic form because the way in which they fit into our lives and how we're thinking about them and talking about them. And so, therefore, let's understand what it means to, to think of games as an aesthetic form. Um, and uh, as opposed to saying, oh, well, they have some inherent essential property that's going to make them an aesthetic form. Um, but I do think that there is, having said that, there, isn't a, there are essential properties of games that make them different from plates, right? Plates hold food, uh, and, you know, plates have a utilitarian function um, that, uh, that, that games don't. I mean, I think even the kinds of... Even when I say that, you know, games give us comfort, right, in some, some cases, um, it's not the comfort of a blanket, really, right? Blankets literally keep us from dying on cold nights, and games will never do that, right? What games do is give us comfort in a form that is both intense and abstracted so that we we get the comfort and we're also aware of the fact that we're getting comfort that to me is what makes them an aesthetic form um and i hope a little bit maybe this is just justification i hope that drop seven is a game about addiction in a way as much as it is simply an (laughs) addictive game right that that's what i hope right and when i when I, play, um, when I play Sudoku or KenKen, Ken, which is like a better than Sudoku, um, <laughs> one of the things I enjoy about that, I'm not a big player of those games, but one of the things I enjoy about it is, is the way in which they really highlight this process by which games make you aware of your own thinking. Um, that you find yourself, you can catch yourself forming, uh, uh, forming heuristics right? The heuristic construction process is always going on in our heads, but we're just not usually aware of it. But when you play Sudoku, you're aware of it. It's awesome. So I think that the process of being addicted to things is always going on in our lives. But when you play World of Warcraft, you are engaging actively, and I think in, in, the, in the process of becoming addicted to something. So I think um, that is, you know, that to me is the hallmark of something that is, that is maybe I don't know, so maybe I'm backing away. I'm saying, rather than saying, oh, anything can be or not be in aesthetic form. It's like, no, games have always been an aesthetic form. They always will be because of this property, right? Because of this kind of double status of, of the values that we get out from, that we get from them.
3: I was wrong on the time, 30 minutes or so. So sorry about that. Um, just to press a little bit. I mean, of course, there are many different schemes for, for defining aesthetics, for defining notions of beauty can be in the object, it can be in the, in the reception of the object, and just to press a little bit back on games, I mean, you've made a, you've, you've taken a stance kind of in the romantic uh, definition of, of aesthetic, where, where, you know, it's it's separated from utility, and it's it's uh, right for its sake, in a sense, but but after all, the design of most of the games, we, or the triple A's for sure, is about making money. I mean, at least from the producer's point of view, a lot of the decisions that are made, a lot of the one might argue conformity in, in games, the reluctance to strike out in radical new directions, has to do with the fact that these are in fact investments that are industrially produced. That's not to me an anti-aesthetic stance. It's fine that, that they're there to make money. That's okay. And but we're one to sort of try to argue this by 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 parsing the object from the utility of the object, you, you wind up you wind up falling into the trap that a lot of film studies folks have argued against for years, you know, just because it's commerce doesn't mean it can't be, uh, it can't generate an aesthetic experience. I appreciate your attempt to step out of that by using aesthetic f- uh, forms rather than art, but is it a real problem to try to say, it, wh- why, given that stance, which is right. a good stance, why do you then want to evacuate u- notions of utility from um,
1: Well, from I, so I don't understand, I don't think of this, to me, the the, the fact that that movies or games are are always created within a context, uh, within a commercial context, or often created within a commercial context. Um, that is, that's a second-order utility, right? It's not the primary function of like when I when I sit down to play uh, Skyrim, right? That um, the 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 experience that I'm getting and the reason I'm engaging with that experience um, has little to do with with the the commercial context in which it was created. So I'm not saying that because these things are made. I mean, yeah, everyone has a reason for doing everything. That's the point, right? The point is that games are an aesthetic form in which reasons are are you know isolated and abstracted, and we enjoy like like you know. The the process of like doing a quest in Skyrim is like a weird abstracted version of work. The process of making Skyrim is just somebody's job, mm-hmm. right? And you know what I mean. So that's that's right. the right. sense in which it's separated out. And and it like like yeah, the fact that these yeah, it's, there's always a weird context for what for yeah like the the. Um, the Sistine Chapel was like a something to like trick people into thinking there's a heaven or whatever. Like some, there's like religious, you know, the religious context for that. But in in thinking about uh, the, that as a, an aesthetic experience, um, we we think about it uh, outside the context of whether or not it was, uh, you know, its function to to get people to believe in a certain ideology. So, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think your language of aesthetic forms is a good one because it kind of blurs the distinction, but this does fall into that trap of you know, the, the lonely artist in the, in the attic and the writer who are pure and un- disconnected from any utility, any ulterior motive, where these things have one, and it has real constraints and real implications for the forms that we work hmm. with. I mean, it enables some kinds of forms. It denies other. And that's part of our judgment. That's part of, that folds in, factors into the way we judge these things, it seems to me. To go back to the plate example, I mean, there are folks who, who buy plates to eat from them, but there are folks who buy plates to look at them because they're, they're cool objects. So that shifts the argument to a reception stance. Why do I engage in it? Why do I yep. enter it? That's also complicated. I play some games because I, my friends play them, and I want to socialize with them. Yes. I mean, that's also a utility. So it just seems to me that that screws up the argument a little. Like, so what if there's utility? Embrace it. That can also be an aesthetic, uh, artif- uh, aesthetic engagement.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I th- I think that is kind of what a little bit what I'm what I'm trying to get at. So like, I play a I, I, I play the games that my friends are playing because I want to to join them in this social ritual, um, and that's precisely what games are. But they're not just that. They're also about that, right? Games both you know both Give me um, the that that buzz of of social interaction and frame it in a way that makes me kind of aware of it, or at least there's the capacity to be aware of it. I don't think there. I don't think we often are aware. In a sense, I'm like Clive Bell. In the sense, I think that often these aesthetic experiences are, are potential, and occasionally we 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 get them, and then sometimes we're just drifting, you know, just drifting through and getting. Much simpler, more primal kinds of, of, of pleasures, um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that. Uh, yeah, to to be, you know, an aesthetic form uh, that that there can't be um, that there isn't some some utilitarian context or kind of instrumental uh, context around the the creation of these things, because clearly, yeah, clearly they are they are commercial products or they're. Or they're made for other reasons. I mean, I think everything is made. Every cultural work is made for lots of complex reasons, whether it's ideological or whether it's in a commercial context or whether you just want to get famous. You know, if a lot of like, you know, people who are the romantic vision of someone like that person is not like the the person who just makes a work of art and gives it away because they they um, you know are. Passionately committed to the exploration of certain aesthetic ideas, is also trying to get famous, right? I mean, they want to also, like, accomplish something in the world. So they are driven by, by, by a, a, util- a sense of utility. Um, so yeah, it is more in the kind of the reception that I'm that I'm finding these, these core values.
4: Yeah. Hi. So. Um, I'm really intrigued by sorry over here yeah I'm intrigued by um, and happy that you talked a bit about um, uh, the aesthetics of uh, of games finding their finding their location between the formal properties that define a game and then also the performance of the game and what I think um, is interesting is um, I, I'm curious if you have a sense for why this is kind of a new idea inside of game studies, which is seems to be kind of focused on video games. Because when I think about, you know, for example, athletics or sports, which have been a, a dominant game form for, you know, millennia, right? The throwing of a javelin, yeah. um, you know, characterizations of that, or characterizations of a Sandy Koufax curveball have been described in yeah. aesthetic terms. Yeah. So what? I mean, do you have a sense for for I mean is it the video games? Is that why we're so slow to catch on to this? This, um, this seems like exciting and new from a video game sense and so not exciting and new from a old yeah. video game sense. <laughs> I, I think
1: that yeah, no, that's a great question. I I think it's because we have a whole set I think the critical community has a whole set of critical uh has, has a has an apparatus to apply to to works that come from other uh forms of other aesthetic forms and uh, so that's precisely what this is is about getting beyond right that they that the sort of um, looking at these things as um, you know using the the tool set of uh, a kind of 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 a literary critic for example is what leads you to focus in on a more conventional understanding of games as a tidy work with a, col- with a collection of attributes that you can then highlight and say, oh yeah, the things that are great about this are it's X, Y, and Z, as opposed to having to look at something like football or, or baseball or, or quite honestly like Madden or, or Call of Duty or, uh, or you know, Defense of the Ancients um, or, or Team Fortress, uh, but these are the games that people are actually playing, right? Um, you, you see it in um, the funny contrast between the way people, the way critics write about. So StarCraft II will come out and you know, in, in some ways that game is, is a sport. Like it was designed as an esport. Um, and yet in the reviews, it there, there's a kind of language of describing the game. As, as if it were a movie, right? Describing the, the, the plot and the characters and, and how it, and the sort of the overarching structure of, of the thing as a single player experience, as a, this 25 hour experience, um, like it's a long movie. And, for, and in some ways, Blizzard is just doing both of those things at the same time. They did they, they, And God bless them, Like right? They decided that we're not gonna try to solve that problem. We just put both of these things in the same object. Both of these things are in the same box, right? There is that thing that's like a 20 hour, you know, exper- like an experience which is more like a work, right, in, in the more conventional sense. And you can, and, and uh, yet there's this other thing that's more like baseball, right, which people have been playing for 10 years and which in, in South Korea is, is like, you know, has the status that baseball has in, in America. And they just put those things in the box and say, well, we, we didn't try to solve that problem. We're just, you know, trying to make money and, you know, and, uh, um, but, uh yeah, but it's, I think it's because it's so much easier. I think it's because it's hard. They haven't done it because it's hard. And I think, but I think, the, I think we are starting to do it. Um, and I think part of, I think it would be interesting to see, like there's this whole history of sports uh, criticism of philosophy and ac- academic uh, thinking um, that has almost no overlap with game studies. And it's, it's weird. And I think we might... S- start to see a thaw between those two things, because I think they have a lot to say to each other. Hi, over here. Hey. Um, so getting
5: back to the, the line of questioning about sort of utility and disinterested <laughs> notions of aesthetics, um, it seems like the conversation uh, has been mostly on the level of discussing games as sort of a, an aesthetic form unto themselves. Uh, but games also contain within them a uh, vast number of aesthetic forms, things like uh, polygonal or sprite-based character mm-hmm. models, uh, visual effects, level designs, textures, and these are produced through sort of very complicated uh, and extensive networks of, of labor and of expertise. Uh, they're made by artists who specialize in the creation of these sorts of aesthetic forms. Um, but then games are also about winning and losing or at the very least about progress. So. Uh, as players approach these aesthetic forms within games, they do so necessarily in sort of a utilitarian framework. Um, so if, if we're following from this sort of Kantian notion of, of aesthetics as being, uh, of, of aesthetic appreciation being necessarily disinterested, then is that to say that, that uh, we, as players we can't approach these objects on a purely aesthetic form? Or would you argue that, you know, uh, utility within games is already sort of an abstracted and aestheticized form of utility? Um, I thought uh, yeah, you Yeah, mentioned- basically that. When I, when, I, when
1: I say that, you know, this, this notion of disinterestedness, it's not that, you're, that there's no interest in... Like, when you're in the game, then all you want is to get to the last square of the Candyland board. The important thing is that there's nothing there and that you know that there's nothing there, right? Kids know that they, they're not going to get actual candy, you know, when they get to the last square. But they enter into the game and then that they're acting as if they're performing this, this belief... In, in getting to the last square. there, And that's that's where winning and loo- that's what winning and losing is in, in a game. It's like, yeah, you're performing interest. You are interested in this thing that you know fully well has no value outside of the game. Um, but by doing that, it makes the game go. And making the game go, like, takes you through all of these weird and interesting and complicated and beautiful and hypnotic kinds of... L- this landscape of all this wonderful stuff. Um, so, yeah, so... So yeah, sure, there's plenty of of utility in games. It's like, which of of these two weapons do you want to pick for this next battle? You can spend hours thinking about that question because one of them is going to be better than the other at accomplishing the goal that you want to accomplish, right? That's, yeah, inside the game. That's right, but no one's actually going to get killed. You're not going to actually save any villages. You know, that's like...
5: I think that's fair, but it also seems like a lot of these uh, these artists have a kind of sense of... um, uh, th- they're they're not so secure in the idea that their their work can be appreciated and accessed on that aesthetic level in, in a, a lot of games. I mean, we mentioned Skyrim a moment ago. Skyrim does this really interesting thing in its loading screens where you see this sort of aestheticized object taken out of the context of the game, and you can pan around this mm-hmm. object and zoom in and admire it and appreciate the work that went into it, uh, posed character models that aren't even moving. Um, and and it, it seems like, you know, a, a game like Gran Turismo will have its garage where you can go and just marvel at the, uh, the car models yeah. outside of the context of gameplay. So it but seems you know as though what? there I is just an don't idea think the, that it, it, there's a distance. I, yeah,
1: I, I think those things are different, though, I mean, because you can get a, almost exactly that same experience in a commercial, right? You see a beautiful 3D model in a TV commercial. There's something else that's happening in Gran Turismo. The beauty, the real beauty of Gran Turismo is the way that those things, those other forms are put in service of that experience of like getting your fucking license, you know what I mean? Like learning how to turn, learning how to stop. Like, and I think that's, that's those, it's those, it's the objects in it's these gorgeous, you know, um, polygonal objects and this beautiful lighting put in service of this experience, which is an, interact, an interactive experience. It is the interaction that is the thing that makes Gran Turismo what it is.
4: Um, so I want to go back to the utility thing, too. I think that's really interesting. Um, and it got me thinking a little bit about other things that are similar. And I was sort of struck that online systems, things like Twitter and Facebook, have a lot of these same properties, right? That They are interactive. They are a sort of context of rules. Yeah. There is a performance. There's some meaning that comes from the designers, but there's things that comes from users. That Twitter with nobody using it is a very different thing than Twitter with millions of users. Yeah. And Twitter's changed over its growth. So I was curious if you think those are included in this model of aesthetic forms and in what ways those... Are fundamentally different from games, even though they seem yeah. to share some qualities.
1: Um, yeah, I think that they're mostly not. Like, I, I don't think of those. I mean, and again, I'm trying to tap into um, what I think of as very just. I don't want to. I want to have a very conventional, common sense, and widely accepted notion of what these things are, as opposed to a radical or challenging notion of what of what aesthetics is. And so, to me, is Twitter an aesthetic work? Nah, no. It's, it that doesn't feel like it. It feels more like like, it's it's an it's an application with a with a function, right? Um, now there are you can imagine like debate club is you can imagine debate club as an aesthetic work. Like, hey, if we're gonna get together purely for the practice of engaging in rhetorical debate for its own sake because we enjoy it and we think it's beautiful, yeah, that, that is a, an aesthetic form. To the degree that you're using Twitter like that, it is kind of like it's like debate club. It's it's it is. Um, but you can also, I mean, people use Twitter just to keep in touch with their friends and say, hey, when I'm, I'm, I'm coming over, or to tell people, you know, that they've written a new blog post. I mean, that's really what Twitter is for, you know, it's for getting people to read your blog. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my rule of thumb is if there, if, if you could... Replace the thing with a button. If you push a button and get a million people to read your blog rather than composing a Twitter message and sending it out, would you do it? And yes, you would, right? Because what you're really interested in is getting people to read this blog post that you wrote. Um, so that, as opposed to, like, if you could push a button and have your license, have your Gran, Gran Turismo uh, Class A license, rather than sitting down and having to suffer through 60 hours of playing Gran Turismo, would you do it? Like, no, that's absurd, right? Um, there's no, yeah, if you could push a button and get, um, and, and have read Madame Bovary, right? Get all of the insight into the world that, that, that comes from reading a great novel like Madame would you do that? No, you want to sit down and read it. That's the difference, to my mind. That's the litmus test. And I don't think Twitter quite passes that.
6: Hello, my name is hey. Taras. I'm composer, sound designer. And uh, first of all, I really appreciate your comparison uh, to music uh, in aesthetic form. And also, I wanted to point it out that um, you you mentioned uh, that sort of uh, compartmentalization in academia. And uh, my question, do you think that actually game could be a sort of universal platform that unifies the academia Uh, or actually goes further, that it perhaps... um, operates on this sort of primal um, urges that actually beyond our inter- intellectual and uh, status or whatever uh, uh, we have in our society forms and...
1: Games as a, as a universal platform? As
6: a universal platform for perhaps... A, a
1: Probably not. I'm going to say no to that one just because... I mean, that sounds like a, a, a dream of, of a grand unified... Um, you know, vision, and I think games. Uh, be, I think games tempt us into thinking about these kinds of grand unified visions, uh, partly because of their relationship to to computers, and computers are so much about that, right? And you know, so much about imagining a kind of um, universal calculus that that. Answers all problems and, and uh, um, but uh, no I think games are, are pretty much always kind of a marginal part of our lives right aesthetic forms in general are usually like the things we do after we've you know uh, built a bridge and and, uh, and killed the wolves and uh, and and we come home and we do and we have time to make music or or play a game. Um, as opposed to the thing that, that we do when we w- first wake up in the morning. No, the thing we do when we first wake up in the morning is feed the sheep and, and then go kill the wolves and then go repair the bridge. And then we get to play music and play, and, and play games.
6: What about those uh, societies uh, in a sense that already exists, uh, like uh, gaming communities, uh, with, yeah. their its, with its own currencies, uh, with its own policies? Like doesn't it uh, has a tendency sort of to have like a, sort of its own country, a virtual country? so like virtual
1: worlds and stuff like that virtual
6: world game so i mean this is also a platform that you know already connects on a global scale not geographically sort of so i mean the tendency is there but you don't say that this is actually i
1: don't know to my my feeling about those things is that to, to the degree that um a a virtual world is a game then it's like then it is then it's like a it's more like a painting right it's not actually a nation it's more like a story about a nation or, or a model of a nation or an abstract kind of idea of a nation that's, put, that's framed in a way that allows us to experience it uh, in this aesthetic way. And then, um, so it's not actually a nation. So that's where I, I disagree with um, Ed Castronova, for example, you know, who believes in it. Virtual currencies are just actual currencies. No, I think that that's the point of a virtual currency is that it's not a real currency, right? I mean, that's what like a world of, a World of Warcraft gold piece, a big part of its value is that it's not real currency. And to not understand that basic idea, to me, seems absurd, right? Um, Hello. Um, I
2: I would like you to, uh, I would like to understand better this differentiation that you made between art and aesthetic form, because I might not be very convinced about the way you defined art, and, Maybe because of the way you talk about painting, for example, there, is, there are a lot of contemporary works of art that are painting, and there is nothing to, to see. They are a set of instructions, as well as there is a lot of contemporary art that is in material. Or, or also there are works of art that are games. So the way that art, art can evaluate these kind of pieces of work... Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I want to. I want to understand. Also, I sure. think you, you said something about uh, something that wants to. That you defined art as something that is looking to have an a status, and then to represent this, you put an image of Gwen and Stefani and I don't know who that the other star was. Uh, so I think I was. I, I'm confused because I think you are talking about the art system, the system of art. Yeah. And not art. And also, when you talk about this uh, distinction between the object and its utility. You're talking about an issue that is very, that is fundamental in art and there is yeah. also art that is bad art, but this is still art and it is aesthetic form. So I am confused about your definition of art and I am very surprised that you made the definition so fast. You know, it is the biggest problem of the philosophy of art to define what art is. So I am really confused.
1: Right. No, I mean, Thank I think you. what I'm doing is within the tradition of that. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure, so you're saying that boil it down for me one way, because I, I totally get what the sort of angle, but like what's the main so you're saying that 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 I'm ignoring that these questions are already part of like fine art discourse and the philosophy of art
2: uh, no, 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 I'm not saying that you're ignoring that. I'm just confused about how you are making this differentiation between art and aesthetic form in relation to video games
1: okay, okay, so so. Part of what I'm saying is that, like, art, the, like, art practice, like, contemporary art practice of what you're describing um, is, is, a, is a, a well-understood domain, right? It is, whether or not the, the, you're, you're talking about the construction of paintings and sculptures or kind of relational aesthetics and performance pieces and, uh, and environmental art and site-based art or earthworks or whatever, um, all of that, to me... It is still within the domain of, like, a really well-defined and understood uh, uh, part of culture, right? It's I call it gallery objects, and I know that that's kind of dismissive, but that's sort of the heart of the matter, right? It's like you go to New York City and you want to see art. There's no confusion. I know where to tell you to go. You're going to go to the Meatpacking District, and you're going to go to Chelsea, and you're going you, to take you to galleries or museums, and that's where you're going to see this, or maybe you'll go to a pl- place to see a performance. But it's really, I mean... It is a domain of culture in which it's a well, kind of well-defined and, and understood, right? And that's different from games, right? If you say, oh, I want to play games, then we'll go somewhere else. Maybe, you know, um, uh, you know the, right? So in that sense, it's, it's just, I mean, again, it's very just a kind of conventional, well-understood distinction between these two domains, right? I don't think when people say, are games art, they mean do games fit into that particular? Yes, occasionally, yeah, you, you will get games in the Whitney, or something like, uh, you know, you'll get a Mark Essen uh, game, you know, in the Whitney Biennial, um, but that just seems like so, is that an important, like that seems so unimportant in understanding how games work as, as culture, whether or not, what their, their relationship is to this, and also, I mean, I mean this is, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm teasing a little bit with this Marina Abramovich uh, work, which is, because it's so absurd, but I'm partly trying to deflate, you know, art, as a word is so, has this hypnotic quality that's kind of BS in a way, right? And I am trying to deflate it a little bit. It's not a knock against art. I'm a trained artist, I study painting, that's how I got my start, you know, it's like sitting in, you know, in the university library, reading art forums and trying to understand what it means to think and, and talk and write and paint like an artist. Um, I have a lot of fondness for that and my, you know, my, my underst- a lot of my understanding of aesthetics comes out of the time I spent really thinking about that as a, as a fine artist. Um, so I'm not saying that this is not an interesting domain, but I did choose to leave that domain. I said, you know what? This is not as interesting to me as what's happening in, in games. Right? But that was a personal choice. Um, uh, I, I, I think there's still amazing art that's being made in the context of this, um, uh, you know, of this tradition. Um, but I do think it's a separate question, right? Do you think that those, you're, you're saying that the, those two questions are more deep, like what games, like how games work as an aesthetic form and, and this particular domain are, are, are deeply connected?
2: No, I was trying to understand what you uh, how you were regarding art, because in a way, even if you are making this differentiation as aesthetic forms, I think deeply inside, you're still talking about art, but art like in, capital letters not art not the, s- the system of art right so
1: you're talking about like more like this i'm this. talking
2: you know to in how i understand it art i wouldn't have you know i i'm talking about art without uh, how do you call this quotes. Quotation the quotes. Marks. Oh, I'm okay talking about art without quotation marks because the qu- quotation marks yeah so yeah I believe in art without quotation marks. I mean, the reason I, I, dis-
1: I the reason me. I, I <laughs> so there you go. So the re- the reason I avoid this term is really has nothing to do. Like, it's really just about how people react to the term, right? If I think well, you can have the conversation without the term, then you're always better off because because there there's such a, a swirl of like in weird intensity around this particular word. And if you're interested in words, then yeah, then you should have that conversation and get into the word but if you're interested in the thing itself like I'm interested in games so for me in like the little blinking light that that sets people off you know in with this word that's why that's why I put it in the thing and talk so much about it I guess I don't know I'm trying to avoid it you know so
2: I see what you mean but if you if you remove the quotation marks I would remove also the line you have drawn there yes it's not about the word it's about the concept
1: yes Yeah. yeah
2: So there will be no difference with your aesthetic
3: form. That is what I mean.
1: Yep. Cool. (laughs) Okay,
3: time for two quickies, and we will be done. Okay.
1: Yeah, I guess I wanted to uh, go back for something that Drew asked you about, which is the talk about Twitter and Facebook. Um, I guess I'm a little bit confused by your distinction between the two because, you know, when I read, like you said, you you might have your Twitter to direct people to your blog, but I read shit my dad says because it gives me kind of a sublime aesthetic experience. And that's obviously an aesthetic form. I mean, people right. who are writing micro literature or it's jokes or whatever and using Twitter, that's clearly yes. Right, yes. And but then also, but but games, right? You can have games that are really, you know, have the uh, instrumentality of allowing me to, you know, play around and communicate with my friends. So I, I guess, could you talk about that? Like, so for example, when I'm hanging around in Minecraft uh, with my friends, it's it's much for me sitting there and talking and building things With my friends as much as it is for the admittedly awesome aesthetic experience no no that is the aesthetic experience that's what i'm saying sitting around bullshitting with your friends in minecraft is the experience like it's that's the beautiful thing like you're getting like because you could also just hang out on skype with your friends right right but you're not you're hanging out in this weird little ritualized space in which your actions are constrained and you have these self-created goals that are driving your behavior and that's the that is the structure through which your relationship with your friends is being put. And that's like dancing, right? That's like getting together with your friends and dancing or getting together with your friends and playing tennis. So that, right? So it's not, it, it's not pure utility, right? If you want a pure utility, you'd be in Skype. <laughs> now you don't have a microphone. So. I <laughs> 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 got you. <laughs>
3: Uh, I agree with almost everything you said, and I'm wondering
1: how would you explain this to somebody who's not an academic, uh, kind of a person on the street kind of a thing? Um, well, I think if you're a person on the street, um, I would, I mean, I guess, the, why are you asking the question in the first place if you're a person on the street? Like, why am I having this conversation with a person on the street? Like, this in some ways is something that is interesting to do, because it's interesting to explore these complex ideas for their own sake and really understand how these, how cultural forms function. Um, I think a person on the street, I wanna have a conversation with them. I wanna find out like, do they play Dota? And if so, what champion did they play? And what, how, how do you play Scion? You know what I mean? Like I wanna know, I wanna have that conversation with the person on the street. I wanna find out if they know the score in the, you know, if, if is in the in the game is is the game over yet? And who won? Like like that's the conversation. I mean, I um, unless that person has a problem that they're looking to solve, uh, um, then I don't necessarily think this is this is an important conversation to have, right? I mean, um, in a weird way, this is like about introducing problems, like introduce. Ooh, what are what are games? Like if, if you don't have that problem already in your life where you're interested in kind of untangling what these things truly mean, um, then, I, then I wouldn't encourage you to, to uh, <laughs> you know what I mean, to like, to, to go there. Like, it's they're kind of, um, they just keep you up at night, you know, and it's fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, so maybe that. So no one's going to ask me about gamification. I thought that would, I thought that would be the, the number one topic of this whole, that would, that's where this, this question of like utility would lead. But we have... Um, <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um. Enjoyed this very much. Um, uh, I'm very curious about uh, your audience. Who who do you think this conversation matters most to?
3: And what is the uh, what is the value? Where is the
1: value of this conf- uh, conversation? I you know, yeah. it's valuable to me. I'm I'm sitting here obviously, yeah. and I enjoyed it. But you know, when when you think about your program of uh, uh, this approach and so forth, right.
4: Where, who is your audience?
1: Uh, well, are yeah. you talking to academics? Are you talking to game developers? you talking to players? All of the above? Could you say a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, to a certain degree, my, my audience is like yeah, yeah, game scholars and... Cultural critics and game designers. It's the people who are like in the, the talk to like people like Jason Rohr and Clint Hawking and Eric Zerman who are who are game designers who are also thinking about this stuff. But it's also, I mean, part of it is about engaging in this larger question about things like gamification, right? So, so one of the the to me, one of the things that I think is problematic about this larger conversation that's going on about um, how games can be applied as solutions to real-world problems is that it misses their, you know, I think one of the sources of that discussion is people looking for a justification for games, right? People, People are devoting their lives to studying them, right? These academics and stuff, they're like, well, I love games. I'm super interested in them. They're clearly hot, right? There's all of this heat around them. And so I'm writing about them, I'm studying them and I'm like but I kind of like what are what are they good for? And so it's like oh well it turns out they're good for like like delivering, you know, medicine to babies and helping us all live longer and heal better and live smarter and they're better at like teaching people about microfinance and and curing poverty and stuff. And and so I think that comes out of a confusion of the fact that, no, 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 We relax, it's okay. They're, this is what they're for. You, you like them because you are interested in them, they're, they're fascinating, and that's what they're there for. Just, it's okay, just write about that. Like, just stop trying to justify them or put them into this other context or discover, like, what? And, and I think that that happens all over the place. I think, like, we're, as, as, we, as we start to understand what, that they are primarily this thing in aesthetic form, um, I think that's going to help all kinds of larger conversations. So maybe this is a better answer to the, to the, the man in the street, like, about, about legislation, about what games are and what they're, you know, about who should be playing them and, and, and why and how and, and whether a certain thing is appropriate for a game or not and all of these other kinds of things. I really do think it helps to, 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 uh, to clarify those questions.
3: Okay, well, Frank, thanks very much for coming and for Thank running you. the gauntlet. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh there's a reception afterwards.